Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. To start the show, I want to make a quick mention of the black exploitation films Filmstruck just added to its programming last Friday. Filmstruck is showcasing eight classics of black exploitation cinema, so I want to remind people to revisit Cinema Junkie Podcast 60 featuring David Walker, writer of the Shaft comic books. Walker talks about his love for black exploitation films of the 70s and says we're due for black exploitation 2.0. This month, Filmstruck added the titles of Shaft, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Cleopatra Jones, Superfly, The Mac, Black Belt Jones, Dolomite, and Petey Wheatstraw. The films will be presented by Malcolm Mays of Snowfall and the upcoming Flint, Michael J. White of Black Dynamite, and Scott Sanders, also of Black Dynamite, as well as Thick as Thieves. Mays was too young to have seen those films on their first run, but he discovered them through his parents, who spent their youth ingesting those films. He said there was a tradition on Sundays of going to church and then watching an oldie for what he calls Soul Cinema Sundays. He saw films such as Shaft, which impressed him as being unapologetically black, thanks to photographer-turned-filmmaker Gordon Parks. Mays prefers the term soul cinema to blaxploitation, but he loves all the films in the collection that will be available on Filmstruck for the next six months. We spoke briefly about the films in the collection. I love them all. I can't even lie. <laughs> what I will say is the one that was most helpful, the one that has always stuck with me the most interesting has been Sweetback's Badass Song, simply just, mm-hmm. not, and, and for different reasons. They all affect me for different reasons. Shaft, because it was like a studio picture that was really dope. And then Sweetback, Sweetback, Badass Song, because it's just like audacious and raw and gritty and earth, wind, and fire. God, please. And then Dolomite, because it's hilarious. You know what I mean? Like, just hilarious. Like, there, there's different reasons that I'm in love with all of the uh, films currently posted. What do you think the legacy of these films are? Or, I mean, do you see that there's an impact from those films on films being made today or some filmmakers today? Absolutely. A, the swagger. B, not just like people of color, like on movie making. I mean, independent cinema during that time period was a big, big, big thing. Uh, how movies were being made was a big, big, big thing. It was unapologetic. It was daring. It was dashing. Having music be so intertwined in 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 the cinema itself, big deal. Uh, the black experience, as it stands, not as it should, not as it's contextualized through a, another person's lens. Every minority in America can has taken a little bit of that spirit. I would say not just minorities, but every independent filmmaker has taken that spirit from those types of movies. Because without Melvin, we don't have Spike. Without Spike, we don't have John. And without John, we don't have like Cougar, and you know, like, and you know, it's just this. And without those filmmakers, we don't have all those actors. We don't have those those social topics highlighted on a a part of the cultural zeitgeist. They're not in the conversation. Um, if you had to tell someone who's never experienced any of these films, never tried them, what would you tell them mm-hmm. to kind of entice someone to come watch these? It depends on their age, but mostly I probably start with, "Do you like Quentin Tarantino?" Yes. Do you want to know where he got his swag? One of the main sources of his swag. Sure. Well, then you need to watch Foxy Brown. You need to watch Cleopatra Jones. You need to watch Melvin Van Peebles, Sweet Eric, Badass Song. You need to watch Black Brothers. You need to watch every piece of Black Boy's Station. 
because it's going to provide you with an experience that you've never had. That was Malcolm Mays, one of the co-presenters of Filmstruck's Blaxploitation Collection. Now to the podcast I wanted to pull out of the archives in honor of a special anniversary. Fifty years ago this month, a horror classic was born. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby. Most people remember that the film was directed by Roman Polanski. But the man who got billed above him in the trailer, and the first person whose name appears in the opening credits, is that of William Castle. Castle, not Polanski, is the man I want to talk about today, because his unique brand of showmanship is something that deserves being celebrated. Ironically, Rosemary's Baby is the one prestige picture that Castle is associated with. But it's his other films that defined his distinctive approach to filmmaking, an approach that included audacious gimmicks to lure people into the cinema. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by The Tingler. This year marks the 50th anniversary of two wildly divergent films in Castle's catalog. One, the prestige film Rosemary's Baby that he produced, and the other, the B-movie he directed called Project X. For today's podcast, I dig back into the archives for a 2011 interview I did with William Castle's delightful daughter, Terry Castle. First of all, I just want to ask, you were fairly young when your dad was kind of in the the prime of his filmmaking. What kind of memories do you have of his work? Well, I was on the set of probably all of my dad's pictures. Now, House on Haunted Hill and Macabre, I was really little, so I have very little memory. Although I do remember going over to Vincent Price's house and having turtle soup. I still don't know what, want to know what's in the turtle soup, but it was, it was delicious, and Vincent Price was so elegant and wonderful. But I do remember so many things about his, his set. I think the most striking thing I remember is how much of a family it felt like on each of the sets. Dad created um, an ambiance where everybody felt like they were part of it, and people would be up at that rafter saying, hey, Bill, what about this shot? Or the cameraman would be running up to him, and there'd be a scurry of activity. It was quite something. Um, I do remember the set for Saw What You Did and the set for Straight Jacket, because I was a little bit older. And I remember both those sets were freezing cold. And I remember asking my father, why are these sets so cold? It's like I, I had. Ne- it's like being in the Arctic chill, and it was because Joan Crawford, who was aging, wanted her skin to be really taut, so they kept the, the temperature down really, really low. This is Joan Crawford. I urge you to see my new motion picture straitjacket from the beginning. <laughs> Don't reveal the surprise shock ending. Don't reveal the surprise shock ending. When you were young, did any of this stuff on the set scare you? Um, you know, it's actually really, really funny, because I was supposed to be in one of Dad's movies. I was actually supposed to be in Straight Jacket. 
And I was supposed to actually see, uh, I was supposed to play Diane Baker as a little girl. And so I was supposed to walk in and see my mother hacked to death, my father and my father's lover. Okay, that didn't scare me at all. When I actually got to the set and was all prepared to play the part, what scared me was being on set and being on stage. And then I freaked out and I didn't play the part. But the actual filming of the movies, they didn't actually scare me. I guess horror must be in my blood. Well, let me ask this, like, what were the films scary? Like, if you went to see the film in the theater, did you feel scared by that as opposed to being on the set where it's kind of like you're in the process of making the film? Yeah, I mean, when I went to see Homicidal, and in fact, you know, we, uh, the, Homicidal really freaked me out. Um, I, I think that's a really scary film. For the first time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal. And I was old enough then to actually appreciate how scary it was. Um, Same with Rosemary's Baby, but Rosemary's Baby was scary for lots of different reasons. But yeah, the films themselves were scary, especially as I grew up. Like you said, I was pretty young when the earlier ones were made. But when I was, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 watching those films, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was scared um, in the movie theaters. But I had probably seen enough of what had gone on on the set, and my father, father probably talked about it enough that it, I wasn't terrified or traumatized. Well, maybe I was. Maybe that's the explanation for all my troubles today. If homicide is your hobby, Uh, May I recommend a surgical knife for a nice, clean, quiet murder? I'm William Castle, and uh, uh, this wheelchair is just to rest my tired nerves after producing a picture like this one. We are so sure you will find it such a shocking and startling experience that we are offering a money-back guarantee when you come to see homicidal. At the height of the suspense, there will be a fright break, an interval during which you can quiet your nerves. If you are too frightened to see the end of the picture, your full admission price will be refunded. Time to go downstairs now. Got a date to carve a corpse. What do you remember of the gimmicks and stuff that your dad set up for actually screening the films in the theater? Well, I think that dad made these these pictures. I mean, he started out with a movie called Macabre, and I think he made it for $90,000, and he probably shot it in a week. I think House on Haunted Hill he shot in 13 days. But I think he made the films, and then I think he was frightened that nobody would come. And so he decided he'd have to create a reason for people to come. He was a, he was a showman. I mean, he knew how to promote a film. So with Macabre, he went to Lloyd's of London, and he got insurance policies and insured moviegoers against death by fright. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre, the life of everyone in the theater will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyds of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known heart condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. In House on Haunted Hill, he came up with a Murgo where a skeleton flew through the audience um, on a pulley at the, at, the, at the exact moment when Vincent Price is, is, is digging a skeleton out of a vat of acid. And I love the gimmick he did in thir- 
13 Ghosts. Illusion, though, to me, is one of my favorites. Come in, William Castle, the producer of this motion picture, has a question for you. Do you believe in ghosts? Some people believe in them. Others do not. Personally, I do. And I feel sure that when you leave this theater, you too will believe in ghosts. Well, I not only will describe what the gimmick was, I will describe to you how my father got the idea for the gimmick, which is fabulous. So, and, and this is really funny. So it's called Illusiono, and, and Dad went to the eye doctor once, and I don't, you know, if you know if you've ever been to the eye doctor, they put this contraption on your eyes, and they show you all different, you know, can you see this, can you see this, and, you know, all these knobs and all these, you know, buttons are pressed, and, and Dad had this brilliant idea for Illusiono, and basically he created ghost viewers or ghost removers, and it was not 3D. It was a strip of cellophane, of red cellophane, and a strip of, a uh, strip of blue cellophane. And if you look through the red cellophane, you were able to see the ghosts. If you look through the blue cellophane, the ghosts were taken away. So if you were too afraid, you would look through the blue. But if you were brave, you could see the, look through the red. And, of course, everybody had to try it all out. But, of course, you wanted to see the ghosts because you were there to see a horror film, right? When you came in, you were given a special ghost viewer like this. And here's how it works. Would you please change the color of the screen? Thank you. You must only use it when the screen changes to this kind of a bluish color. Then you raise the viewer to your eyes and you look at the screen through it. If you believe in ghosts, you look through the red part of the viewer. If you do not believe in ghosts, you look through the blue part. Would you please change the color again? Thank you. Now, when the screen resumes its normal color, like this, remove the viewer from in front of your eyes until the next time the screen becomes blue. Oh, one more thing. If someone sits down next to you during the picture, it would be helpful if you would show him or her how the viewer should be used. And remember, if you believe in ghosts, look through the red part. If you don't believe in ghosts, look through the blue. Happy haunting. Goodbye for now. Did your dad kind of get as much fun or put as much energy into kind of the showmanship aspect of the film as he did into the filmmaking? Yes, he put he put so much into the showmanship of each and every film. And he went to every theater and every opening and he was there and there was nurses taking your blood pressure and there were, you know, you know there were ambulances waiting in case people died from fright and uh, he interviewed people. He just got the. He just he connected with the audience. He loved the audience, and I think. I mean, he was a showman, and and I think that's why he's back from the grave today. I mean, you do know he is back, right? Yes, I've heard those stories. <laughs> stories, you say? So, some people just won't stay dead. No. Yeah, exactly. And he is one of those people. <laughs> and it's fitting. It's completely fitting. I mean, if anybody could come back from the grave, it would be my father. Was your father someone who, it, I've seen, in talking to a lot of horror filmmakers and stuff, they always seemed like the most well-adjusted, like kind, gracious people. It seemed like if you met them at a cocktail party or something, you'd never guess that that's what they did. Is that kind of like what your father was, or was he kind of obsessed with, with horror? Did he have a lot of nightmares? I mean, what kind of a person was he? Well, he was the gentlest, most wonderful man, like you said. I mean, a lot of a lot of people who are in, in, in the horror, in the genre, you think, oh, my God, they're going to be completely creepy and scary. But my dad happened to be, 
he was just a champion for the underdog. He was kind. He was compassionate. He he was he was like I, I couldn't have, have I was I'm the luckiest person in the world to have had him as a dad, and he was just dad. I mean, he wasn't even you know it wasn't even like I when he would get people would you know swarm around him for autographs. I'd be like, why do they want his autograph? He's just dad, and he was he was just he was just the nicest, kindest person. And do you have any memories of uh, the making of Thirteen Ghosts at all? I remember going to see it. I was really young. I think it came out in 1960, and so I was only a couple years old. So I don't have really vivid memories. Unfortunately, I wish I did. But I do remember, I do remember, you know, stories about it. And I do remember the wonderful, wonderful, you know, Rob White script and um, the great cast. 13 Ghosts, I think, just had chills and thrills for everybody in the family. I wish there were more movies like that today because that was a horror film that a kid could see. You know, if you were, if you were 12 years old, you could have gone to see 13 Ghosts. I just wish there were more films like that today because 13-year-olds don't get to see horror films, really. Well, some of the stuff on TV, there's a little bit. Scooby-Doo, to me, is like the entry, the gateway drug for right. kids who want to go into horror. horror. I can't wait to see Paranormal Activity 3, you know. My dad would have loved that. He would have <laughs> loved that marketing campaign, too. Yeah, do you see anybody today who's got that kind of showmanship like your dad? Well, John Waters. <laughs> Can I? Well, I think John Waters, you know, he speaks so you know fondly of my dad. But he's definitely all about. He's definitely all about the show. He's definitely showmanship. I think there's been some fantastic. I don't know if there's showmen like my dad, but there's definitely been some fantastic marketing campaigns. And I do think Paranormal Activity, the the first one and the second, they had fabulous marketing campaigns. I, I, I think those have been just stunning. What do you think the legacy your dad left behind is? Well, interesting that you asked me what legacy my father has left behind because uh, my dad died thinking he was terribly unsuccessful because. He was relegated to making B-horror films, and then he made Rosemary's Baby, which was an A film, but he produced it and didn't get to direct it. Roman Polanski did. After Rosemary's Baby, he actually got quite ill, and he was never actually able to rebound and to, to come back with another film, and the times changed. So Dad died thinking he was unsuccessful, and I think his legacy is just so so wonderful for me to see all these incredible fans that still remember him and remember him so vividly and so fondly. I'm, I'm constantly approached by people who say, oh my goodness, I remember when I saw 13 Ghosts, I was in, you know, Louisville and I was saw it at this, this theater and I was wearing this outfit. I mean, they remember what they were wearing. My sister dropped me off at the theater and, you know, when Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, it, when she appears on the, I, it terrified me. And, and people remember it to, to to the, to the moment, you know, and, the, and they still have their ghost viewers. I can't tell you how many people still have their ghost viewers from 13 Ghosts. I was wondering, what do you think it is about these kind of horror films that do have such a lasting appeal that, and that people remember them so fondly? It's really interesting. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's complicated. I think that the, there was an innocence in the 50s and 60s, and I think that Dad made the, 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 the experience of theater. This is, it was a, really a theater-going experience. So it wasn't just going to see a movie. It was an entire experience because of all the gimmicks. And I think that the movies had a certain naivete towards them, and I think people are craving that time again. In 1968, the same year as The Night of the Living Dead came out and Rosemary's Baby came out, we had the Tet Offensive, we had the Robert Kennedy assassination, and then we had um, the Martin Luther King assassination, and our world changed. And also, horror films changed forever. And I really think that horror films reflect the times we live in. 
And I think right now there is a huge desire to go back to that, say, that, that, that innocence, that place of innocence. But our audiences are so sophisticated, so it's, it's, it's sort of difficult. I think the Harry Potter series sort of captured some of that in the books and the movies. There's a certain innocence there, yet it appeals to a more sophisticated audience. But I think it's tricky. Is there a new book coming? I know there, there was a reissue of um, his biography, but is there also a new book coming out as well? Yes. Um, my dad, like I said, is, is back from the grave, and he has written a book called The Prayer. It's called From the Grave, The Prayer. And it's narrated by my dad as a dead man, and it tells um, his story, um, what it's like for him to be dead, and his encounter with three teenage kids as they go on this quest for an ancient manuscript through southern France. What's really interesting about the story is that in his autobiography um, that, that you said just came out as well, uh, he, Dad talks about um, driving through the countryside of southern France in 1958 with my mom. And they stopped at a house that looked like haunted. And my, my dad said to my mom, look at this house. It's, it looks like it's haunted. And my mom said, yeah, it's kind of creepy. And my father said, well, I'm going to buy it. And my mother said, what, are you out of your mind? And my dad said, no, I'm going to make 10 million keys, and I'm going to give them away at my next haunted house film, and someone's going to win a house in southern France, a haunted house. And so my dad bought the house the very next day, but he never got to use the gimmick. And that's the house he haunts today. That's where my dad, I think, is, is, is living or is dead, <laughs> haunting, is this house in southern France that he bought in 1959. I was wondering, like, when you were a kid, did your dad tell you scary stories also? Like, did he like to read you scary books or, you know, recount scary tales to you? My dad absolutely loved Roald Dahl. So he, he, I guess he, like, I think my father totally, like, totally related to the misunderstood kid. And I think that's why there's these misunderstood kids in his book, because my dad was orphaned when he was 11 um, and raised by his older sister. And I think that he totally related to that. But he was such a great Great storyteller. And you asked me earlier, he, you said, you know, what kind of, you know, what, what kind, what was he like? And my dad, he was the sweetest, kindest man, like I said, but he was so charismatic. Like, you would be at a party and everybody would go right to him. I don't know why. He just had this unbelievable charisma. But when we would have bonfires at our beach house, I mean, he would tell a scary story and all the kids' eyes would be like huge. They would be dilated, fixated, their eyeballs fixated on my dad as he spun a tale of terror. It was just fantastic. But he, he used to dream a lot of his, his movies. And then he'd wake up and he'd, he'd, we'd have breakfast with him, my sister and I, and you know, over orange juice and, and Cheerios, he would, tell us, he would tell us a tale. And some of them actually made it on the big screen. <laughs> I was wondering, did your dad like to go in the theater and watch the audience? Oh my God, yes. My dad, not a, <laughs> yes. He would love to go. He would, we would go to every single movie. I have the sweetest story, though, about my father. I remember when Rosemary's Baby came out. It played in Westwood Village um, in Los Angeles. And um, there were lines around the block, and it, it played for a long time, and it did phenomenally well. And my dad would go all the time. We'd go all the time and sit in the theater and watch people, and, and you know, he would just get the biggest kick. And I would be terrified that, you know, that the people wouldn't scream at the right places. And, you know, I was always the one that was nervous, but he would have his big cigar and be very excited about the whole thing. But my dad went to every single person who worked at the theater, he, the concessions people, the people who sold the tickets, every single person, and he gave them a tip at the end of the, the run of the movie. That's, Isn't that sweet? That's something that I, I doubt ever happens today. <laughs> I but I can remember him doing that. Like, I have to get them something. They took care of all these people and gave them all a tip. 
<laughs> well, I want to thank you for your time and for being available on such short notice. I really no appreciate problem. it. I, mean, I always like to talk about my father. <laughs> he's back from the grave, you know. <laughs> well, and those films are just delightful. They're so thank much you. fun. Thanks, Beth. That was Terry Castle from a 2011 interview I did about her father and consummate showman, William Castle. Thanks for listening to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. The podcast comes out every other Friday, with an occasional break for the holidays. Check out the archives for interviews with Sir Ian McKellen, Clive Barker, and David Cronenberg, as well as discussions of film noir, horror, musicals, and much more. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It just takes a minute of your time, and it's a huge help in getting the show out to more listeners. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.